we are in a chapter by chapter, even verse by verse, uh, preaching, exposition, teaching through Peter's first epistle, First Peter chapter 3, First Peter chapter 3. I'd like to read for us verses 1 through 6, or I could say ladies first. You'll notice that at verse 1 it addresses wives, and uh, if I dare show up next Lord's Day, uh, verse 7, you husbands. So, uh, wait your turn, ladies first. Now, this is the word of God. Peter's writing, and uh, you would think that uh, in the first two chapters, writing on such grand themes as our eternal salvation, Christ, God in the flesh, coming, telling us in those first couple chapters that our salvation rests on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. These are grand eternal themes. And then all of a sudden, marriage becomes an issue. And it's not disjointed at all. One of the things that we'll see in our text is that the great God who created all the universe also involves himself in the most intimate of our relationships. Nothing could be more intimate than the relationship uh, in marriage of husband and wife. Verse 1 of chapter 3, In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord and you become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. A woman that I will call Marcia, I will call her that because that is her name, writes these words. She says, shortly after our wedding, I discovered that my husband and I held completely different viewpoints on the role that religion and church was to play in our lives. I was used to going to church every time the doors were open. If I wasn't busy every moment of the day, she says, doing something for God, then I felt like I wasn't being a good Christian. At first, my husband tolerated my religious schedule. But as the years slipped by and he watched the physical and emotional drain on me as I spent time, energy and money on the church, when he thought I should be at home, then 
resentment set in. Any good that I was doing for others was paralleled, it seemed, by the negative reaction of my husband. I tried everything I could think of to get my husband saved. If only he'd become a Christian, I reasoned. Then we could do twice as much for God. Then I'd feel guilty that only one of us was working for God and I'd try to do more to make up for what my husband wasn't doing. As time slipped by and there was no change in him, I began to feel the loneliness and, yes, the shame of being married to a non-Christian. Oh, I'd smile as I sat in church and tell people I was just fine, but inside I was crying and no one seemed to understand. There were times when it was acutely painful for me to live as a single in the Christian life. Like when the doctor said I needed surgery and I couldn't go home and say, honey, pray with me. Other times when I'd be reading a passage of Scripture and some special truth would leap right off the page without thinking I would turn to share it with him, only to be met by a frown. And then the joy died on my lips and the story untold. I was married, but when it came to spiritual things, I was definitely single. Throughout our years of marriage, I've made innumerable mistakes learned many lessons and matured spiritually. At first, I thought I was alone with this dilemma. But I've learned that I have unknown numbers of spiritually single sisters and some brothers who are facing these same problems, experiencing the same questions, and yes, even making some of the same mistakes. Marsha writes, now after more than 20 years of marriage, hundreds of discussions over countless cups of tea, I've attempted to put some of what I've learned on paper. That's why she's writing. Other women, just like me, have gleaned some vital truths that have given us a better perspective for our lives. What it is to live with and love one who is Lost. Now, we have something more than a potent cup of tea. My personal drink would be coffee. And our own ability then sometimes to just share our own experiences in these things. We have something much greater than that. Your open Bible, for example, is the power of God unto salvation and for every situation. I think it's wonderful and quite comforting to review on occasion just how much the word of God speaks about those loved ones that are lost and our relationship to them. Now, perhaps some of you have already checked out from the point at which I introduced the subject. You said two things going for me today. It's going to be a good Sunday. Number one, I'm not a woman. I'm not a wife. Or number two, uh, I'm not married to an unbeliever. I had a lady, uh, not exactly sure what she meant, say to me not too long ago, I think she was being very positively sentimental. It's just that you ever say one of those things that could be taken different ways. She said, you know, 
somehow the longer my husband's been dead, the more I love him. And I, I <laughs> well, we remember the best. But the gospel invades every area of our lives. And we're reminded this morning in this text, the most intimate areas of our lives. I would not have anyone check out thinking that these six verses do not have in some way application to us all. If it is true that all scripture, meaning all parts of scripture, are profitable to all of us for what they teach, then what the Bible has to say, for example, to wives whose husbands are not Christians, there's actually some material in there and some principles for all of us, if you understand what I'm saying. In fact, those few things that I will point out along the way in the next few minutes could be very helpful to you, even if you live all alone in this season of your life. But you have family members that you're deeply concerned about. They may not even live under the same roof with you. If you have a neighbor that you are burdened for spiritually, Two of our neighbors, one across the street from our house, the one right next door to our house, have two dear women in those homes who are going through the throes of battling cancer with very serious diagnosis. We see them as our mission field and we know uh, how important it will be as we respond to their need. And there's principles uh, in these first six verses of chapter three that even apply in that situation. So you start with what would be Peter's specific concern, uh, but it's a little, I think, like dropping a, a big rock into a, a quieted uh, pool of water. There's the initial impact at the center and then all the rippling effects. That's how I want you to view this text so that I don't have half the men in this sanctuary going to sleep, thinking this has nothing to do with them. But all the way back to the center point at which that rock hits the pond, and specifically on the issue of marriage, I want you to see that throughout the scriptures, and in this text in particular, apparently marriage is God's business. Politically, we sometimes uh, hear various interest groups uh, fighting to keep the government, they'll say, has no business in the bedrooms of America. You've heard that kind of thing. Um, but I want you to hear something else just as clearly. God has every business, even in the bedrooms of his people. I could tell you, but we don't have time to portions of scripture that specifically address the sexual, can't get more intimate than that, the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife and a responsibility for that before God. That'll be for another sermon. Thank goodness. But there are at least three. Let me give you three biblical reminders in general before we look at the specifics of the text. I do this rather briefly. I want to say to all of us who ought to be particularly sensitive to our brothers and sisters everywhere in every kind of circumstance in which they may find themselves. If this has never been your trial, if this has never been your test, you are indeed blessed. But never minimize the anguish of those who live in this specific kind of situation. 
that there would be one spouse and only one, though two living under the same roof, that has a relationship to Jesus Christ. It can be an anguish and an agonizing, lonely experience. As you heard uh, the woman speak that I just read comments from. We who are especially blessed in this area need to see the grace that is necessary to keep encouraging those who live in a marriage partnership but live a single Christian life. Or, as I said, this would apply more broadly. I know some folks in our own congregation and they would tell you they are the only Christian in all of their family relationships. There's an anguish to this. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9, 1 through 3. Don't take the time to turn there. I'll read it. But listen to this heart of a man who cares about his relatives outside of Christ. Paul says, I am telling the truth. I can almost see him putting his hand up or maybe on a scroll. I am telling the truth, he says, in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. And here's what he says. That I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Paul, what could be making you so incredibly sorrowful? He said, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my brethren, my kinsmen. And if you think he's only talking about unsaved uh, mankind or unsaved Jews in general, some have missed this in the Romans 9 text. Listen to the whole verse. I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen. That would have been enough. But he says, according to the flesh. It's really a way of expressing, I'm talking about my own blood relatives outside of Christ. It is a sorrow, and we ought never to minimize that and pray and encourage those in such a situation. Secondly, never cease. And this is a word not only for those not in the situation, but I suppose especially for those who find themselves in the situation of living with an unbeliever. Never cease. Never give up. Never get discouraged. Keep praying. Keep Praying for this lost loved one. Paul, who just told us he's got this ongoing concern and sorrow in his heart, said this in the very next chapter, Romans 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. In my former ministry, I'm not sure why I haven't initiated that here the last 10 years, but in my former ministry, we were working with Romans 10:1 at one time in that course of history in our church there, and we put together something called the Romans 10:1 notebook. And we invited everyone in the church to literally write down the name of the lost husband or wife, son or daughter, grandchild, neighbor, friend. And it was called the Romans 10-1 notebook. A notebook of names. And what we were saying is our heart's desire 
And our prayer to God is for their salvation. Every name in this Romans 10.1 notebook is a name that we will not cease to pray for that God in His grace might be pleased to open their eyes and give them faith to trust in Christ. You know what one of the thrills was over the years? We got to take a red marker and on occasion cross out a name and put it down as answered. Always keep praying. Thirdly, to take comfort and hope. If you are one in particular in this kind of situation that Peter addresses, take comfort and hope in the fact that you have been given a special calling from God. Perhaps when this couple were first married, neither one of them were believers. Had one of them been, they surely should have been counseled not to marry an unbeliever. That's elsewhere in the Scriptures. But as was the case, especially in the early days of Christianity, when Peter was preaching the Gospel, many people were coming to Christ, but not always both husband and wife together. And so she finds herself in that situation and the Scriptures would want her to know and we need to know that there is a special calling upon that Christian who lives or is closely related to the unbeliever they're concerned about. Listen to another text of Scripture. I refer to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 14. Listen to this. It's a curious verse. For the unbelieving husband, Paul writes, is sanctified or set apart in a special way. That's what that word literally means. The unbelieving husband is set apart in a special way through his wife. And were it the other way around, the unbelieving wife is sanctified, set apart in a special way through her believing husband. Now, what that means is that an unbeliever abiding, let's face it, under the same roof with a believer is in a very unique situation in terms of how God works his plan of salvation. There's scripture evidence that God looks at a marriage where only one is a believer in a special way set apart for this particular ministry. And the ministry of the believing spouse is what's being outlined here in all the details of verses 1 through 6. Now, we can only look at these rather quickly, but it certainly is a passage for some of you in, particularly, in particular to uh, uh, observe. Now, typically what happens, especially in our culture, and with the advance of a feminism that has pervaded the thinking and, and even the lifestyles of so many today, uh, even Christians come to verses 1 through 6 addressing wives and get no further than this word submission. In the same way, you wives, be submissive. What say? What? Submission? And if that were not enough, it is repeated again in the same way, in this way, in former times, the holy women also hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands and gives the Old Testament example of Abraham's wife, his, her relationship 
uh, to him as something that is to be modeled in the marriage relationship. Well, I could dedicate, you all know, a whole sermon, if not a sermon series, on this one word so many get hung up on when you address the issues of Christian marriage, this idea of the wife submitting to the husband. But I can't take it all apart for us this morning. And it isn't even really Peter's purpose in the text. So if I'm going to be faithful to a verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word, I can't give a separate marriage seminar here except to give you the quick answer. People get hung up, women in particular, on this notion of what it must mean for a wife to be submissive to him, to her husband, because they think somehow God's asking them to take some underling role, some inferior uh, role in the relationship. It is submission to a role, but it has nothing to do with status. When it comes to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen, there is neither male nor female. And all of us stand quite equal in the sight of God, male and female created he them. But this is a God of order. If things are going to work according to God's plan in this universe, everything needs to line up with its purpose and design. God has a role for the man and come next week and he has a role for the woman and stay here for the rest of this message. And you may begin to see that these are actually very beautiful things. I would simply say a whole lot by saying very little and giving you a picture that may be worth a thousand words. So you can get unhung up, ladies, about this word submission. Did you ever ask your husband or... uh, Has the husband ever asked the wife, I know I have, to help move a large, heavy object like a piece of furniture? Now, I know usually it's the wife asking the husband to let's rearrange the room or whatever. And uh, just think about what it would be if trying to get this heavy object, maybe a large sofa through a narrow doorway from one room to the next if both decided, uh, taking either end, that uh, they would choose to simply push. And, and so you have the husband on the one end pushing. And you have a wife who decides that she'll assume the same role. And from her end, she'll push. Let me ask you, how far do you think the sofa moves? What if both decided in this project of rearranging the furniture that they would both assume the role of pulling. Both would be pulling. Again, how far do you think the piece of furniture would move? It doesn't work. But what does work, according to God's design, and by the way, his original purposes in creation, it is not good for man to be alone, especially if he's got to move heavy furniture. God will give to him a help that is meat, that is, that fits, that makes it work. God loves us so much and he loves you so much, dear wives, dear ladies, that he's telling you in advance what your role is if this thing called marriage is going to be what he intended it to be. Now, I can't take more time than that. We are not talking about the inequality or a lower status of women, God forbid. 
In fact, it took New Testament Christianity to raise the status of women in the first century. And even now, they are not as high up on the pinnacle as they should be in terms of how God says a man should treat a woman. By the way, that's the title for next Lord's Day, should the Lord tarry. How a man should treat a woman. It follows after verse 6. But we're still in verses 1 through 6. Let's take it apart just a little bit before we have to go. Notice first in the first verse, the first phrase. In the same way. That's not a very good way to begin a new thought. It's obviously that a case that this is a poor chapter division. It's helpful in terms of looking up a text. But when you start a sentence, well, in the same way, well, is the same way as what? And ladies, let me tell you how this word submission, again, which has bothered so many, becomes suddenly a beautiful thing if always seen in its biblical context. In the same way as what? Listen, he's saying in the previous chapter, in the immediate preceding context, in the same way that Christ submitted himself, did he not? Did he not submit himself to his father when he said, not my will, but thine be done, and it cost him the cross? You ladies that would chafe under some misunderstanding of the role of submission need to get the vision of Christ clear in your mind. He and his submission is your best example. And then some would say, but you don't know my husband. I know a few of them and enough about them that you're right. I don't know your husband. I know enough to probably know that you need to be in my prayers that's for sure. But see what it's saying again. Come back to verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. But come back up to verse 23 that precedes it. Verse 23 in chapter 2. Again, Jesus is the example. Look at his example, dear wives, especially if you are living with an unbelieving husband. While being reviled... You say, you don't know my husband. You don't know how he speaks to me. You don't know how he treats me. Well, I know this about Jesus, your example. That while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, and let's face it, some women and some men, some wives and some husbands suffer in marriage relationships because they are not under the Lordship of Christ. But Jesus, while suffering, uttered no threats, but kept entrusting to himself, to him, that is his Father, who judges righteously. And I'll remind you in the next verse, he tells us he did all that submitting simply so he could bear our sins to the cross. Were I a wife and not a husband... I would say to you with some confidence and boldness this morning, I should see Christ submitting himself and not chafe one bit at having a similar role for what God has designed marriage to be. And then it says, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, that's Peter's way of saying they haven't obeyed the gospel. I suppose you could include in this that 
This husband, maybe he's been born again, but hasn't come very far in the graces and isn't bearing much of the fruit of the Spirit. He's living in disobedience to God. That's possible any day of the week. It's saying to the wife, they may be one, these disobedient husbands. They may be one. Now, what's amazing, and I think this is harder than submission, (laughs) is that they may be one without a word. I think I would rather ask women to learn how to submit than I would want to ask my sisters how not to speak or just to be quiet. I think that's a bigger challenge. But he says they may be won without a word. By what? By the behavior of their wives. It's living out the Christian life in the marriage. And not just with a husband, but perhaps with a son or a daughter that is also outside of God's grace. Or with that family member, a parent, or a neighbor. Again, keep the ripple effect in the pond picture. These principles apply specifically, but they also apply very specifically and in a general way as well. Verse 2 is, they observe your chaste. That word chaste there, by the way, in the Greek is the word for saint. I just love it when a man will tell another man, sometimes I'm that man that a man is talking to, and he'll say something like, you know, my wife is a saint. I actually have a close friend in my life, very close friend, uh, who is not a believer. He's a man. But he will say to me, you know, my wife is a saint. And because I'm as close to her as I am to him, maybe more so because she's a member of this church and in my flock, I can always say to that unbelieving husband, you're right, she is a saint. She has been set apart by God's grace. And what you call being a saint is her simply living out in her behavior, her respectful behavior, verse 2. Then he says in verse 3, we must move along quickly here. Your adornment must not be... Now, my English translation here, the New American Standard, has inserted a word that isn't in the original, but it's so implied that they put it in the English. Here's what it says. Your adornment must not be merely external. It's not saying there's anything wrong with braiding the hair or curling it or at least combing it. And wearing jewelry. Apparently, that's fine with Peter or putting on dresses, especially pretty ones. The prettiest ones for the family of God, ladies, I'll remind you, are those dresses that are not only lovely, but modest. In fact, being modest is part of them being beautiful in the family of God. But he's not saying it doesn't matter your outward appearance. So this is going to be one of the quickest points in this sermon. I suppose... um, Getting your hair done and having a little makeup uh, is not a bad thing. It won't hurt at all. But this, Peter would say, is what's really important. Verse 4. Let it be. Believing wife with an unbelieving husband, let this be you. Let this be a description of you. Let it be, he says, the hidden person of the heart. With this imperishable quality 
of a gentle and quiet spirit. I looked up this word imperishable, an imperishable quality to this believing wife who's living with an unbelieving husband. You know what it literally means in in another context? It could mean it doesn't wrinkle. It doesn't grow old. Now, we grow old. And it's great when you can do it gracefully. But if there's something that never gets old in a marriage, is when a wife has adorned herself with what Peter calls a kind of gentle and quiet spirit that doesn't wrinkle, it doesn't fade, it's imperishable. By the way, the other place that Peter uses the word imperishable to show you how precious this is in the sight of God is when he talks about our imperishable salvation. So this is really the fruit of the Spirit working in her life. A gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. By the way, ladies, whether he notices it or not, whether he thanks you or not, whether he appreciates it or not, you ought to do it anyway because God finds it very attractive in his ladies. He finds it precious in his sight. And this is the whole key to these six verses. You're going to see that what Peter is saying, the best a woman can do who is married to an unbeliever is not to nag him into heaven. It isn't to argue him into heaven. It isn't to drag him by the scruff of his neck into church or into heaven, whatever the case may be. This gentle and quiet spirit is the byproduct of her spending time with her spiritual husband, who is Christ. By the way, he's the best man in the world for anybody to be wedded to. He who is referred to, is he not, as the groom of the bride, which is the church. This is modeled for you, Peter says, in this way in former times. It was the holy women in verse 5. Look at the key here, who hoped in God. Their hope was in God. I'll tell you, ladies, if you put your hope in in your man, in your husband, well, just be ready for all kinds of disappointment. (laughs) But these women modeled what it takes to love one who is lost. They hoped in God. And they adorned themselves with God's role for their marriage. They submitted to their own husbands. And this is spelled out just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. My wife will tell you that probably 1 Peter 3, 6 is the most quoted verse sometimes in our marriage relationship. Use is usually her response when the little tensions have grown. And I mean this all with good humor and she knows it. And I'd say, you know... Sarah is your example, and she called Abraham Lord. And you know what Diane says? She says, oh, for Pete's sake. (laughs) But you see, Abraham was not such a prize either. Sarah, let's tell them you're my sister and not my wife. Boy, there's a real knight in shining armor, isn't it? The father of faith, yes, an example of so much that is right and good. 
But he wasn't much of a husband. You ought to read the relationship that existed in the marriage between Abraham and Sarah. And you'll wonder how in the world did she ever submit to this man? And the key to the text is that her hope was in God. So she dressed herself in the role that God, not a status, not under his dominion, no meaning of lordship there in that regard. She understood her role and she fulfilled it, it says, without being frightened by any fear. I've spent a whole sermon and it's now seven past noon and I have to let you go. But can you believe in these six verses It really comes down to this. Not only if this is your situation specifically, but in all of our witness to those we are most intimate with, to those we know in a casual way, neighbor or friend. It is to devote yourself to God. It is to so fall in love with him that you're not looking for your ultimate contentment in a marriage which may not be, never, maybe, will be all you'd like it to be. The best you can do to love the one who is lost is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And by the way, beyond that, which we didn't have time to do, I wish we couldn't, we will someday, study the intricate details of marriage from Genesis to Revelation. And if you are a wife... Bring yourself in line with God's purpose. He always blesses that. And if you are a husband, discover what it is for you to have an example also in Jesus Christ. Will you stand together with me? When we're dismissing, the instruments are going to be playing for us the tune of a great gospel song. And earlier I was going to quote it in a portion of the message I didn't get to, but we'll get to eventually. The gospel hymn that says, I'm praying for you. And remember, one of the points was to pray without ceasing and pray with a certain agony in your heart for those you love who are lost. God ordains prayer. Listen to these words. I have a savior. He's pleading in glory. A dear loving Savior, though earth friends be few. And now he is watching in tenderness o'er me. And then this expression, but oh, that my Savior was your Savior too. For some of you, you must live with that ongoing desire until Christ may be pleased to fulfill it. Oh, that my Savior, ladies, you'd be able to say, would be his Savior too. And God will honor your faith. Let us pray. I bid you now go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rest in the arms of his love. Pursue holiness and know that your faith and hope are in a living God. And that he will accomplish all that concerns you for his glory. And all of God's people said, Amen.